0: Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter nor be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. As you're finding uh, Isaiah or looking on page nine, I just wanna bring you greetings from brothers and sisters around the world in Central Asia. It was our privilege to facilitate some training uh, with team leaders who are working in lots of places in Central Asia, and I assure you, God is at work in that part of the world, it's so encouraging to see places where five or 10 years ago there were no Christians and no churches. Now there are churches and they're doing leadership development and they're healthy churches. It's just a great privilege for me to bring you greetings sort of through those who work with those who are involved in establishing these healthy churches. So that's a great privilege for me. As you turn to Isaiah 42 or look on page nine, let me begin just praying one more time. God, as we open your word today, would you help us uh, to see the Lord Jesus in all his glory? Would you help us to give him the glory and the praise? Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts find acceptance in your sight. Oh Lord, you are our strength and you are our redeemer. Amen. So I've titled the message today, The Servant Savior is Coming. It was an absolutely critical mission that had failed again and again. And so what God is doing in sending the Servant Savior is providing a superhero of sorts, not to trivialize who Jesus is as our great God and Savior, Not to make light of what Jesus has done, but to connect this passage a little bit with our day and age. A brother from India wrote something about this that got me thinking. Superheroes. For some of us who are older, it used to be just the children that would read about superheroes. They weren't really in the movies. Superman was a comic book. And there were others. But now they're movies. And so the superhero theme or genre is something all of us can connect with. Time and time again, sequels. First it was Superman, then Spider-Man, and then, I'm not going to be really good at this, Iron Man, and then The Invincibles. All of us nowadays can connect with that sort of superhero theme. The Spider-Man series is not just for kids. And I wonder if this superhero notion uh, isn't in some ways... Appealing to a human condition in all of us We know instinctively because of the vestiges of God's image that we were made in God's image However sinful and corrupted that image is we we realize that things are not as they should be All is not right in this world There is injustice We don't relate to one another as we should And so the superhero movies appeal to that vestige of God's image in us, that we know things are not right. And in those movies, there's always a hero that comes that people are waiting for, and he does make things right for a while. And then there's a sequel, or even in the same movies, things deteriorate again, and there's there's yet another need to wait for the coming hero. And... Again, if we've seen the movies or maybe looked at the comic books, there's that situation when things are really bad and and people are wondering, who can rescue us? But when they see the hero coming, their hearts are calm, there's comfort, there's encouragement. So there's that side of the superhero theme, complex genre, whatever you want to call it, that I think connects with us. But again, if you watch the movies, there's another part of God's image. We are all made in his image that I think these movies connect with, and it's this. We also realize things are not as they should be, we're waiting for the superhero, but when we see what the superhero does, don't we wanna be like him? Or in some cases, it's the superwoman now, be like her? We see justice being undone, we see things being fixed, we see right actions, and we think, I should be like that too. Deep down inside, we all know that things are not as they should be and that as as people created in God's image, we bear some responsibility to make things better. We also wait for someone super strong, super competent, perfectly competent. This is where the superhero movies of late get some things right. We also want that person to be gentle and compassionate, kind, and empathetic to use his strength but in a way that helps those who are weak and needy we want that superhero to come and rescue us and save society and creation and make things right once and for all well as we turn to isaiah 42 the good news for us is that god gives a picture to the people in isaiah's day that there is a chosen servant coming who will make all things right, who is gentle and empathetic, who is kind and compassionate, but who will succeed. His mission will be accomplished. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to try to frame this passage a little bit, and then we're going to look at it in three different sort of pivots or points So first the frame, and then I'll give you the pivots. So where are we when we get to Isaiah 42? It's always good to kind of ask, you know when you're in a mall, and they have that little uh, arrow, you are here. Okay, you're not there, you're not there, you are here. Where are we? We're in Isaiah. Well, where is that? Okay, this is a time in which God, let's just back up a minute, God created the world, there was a flood. He gave a promise to Abraham and said, you know, I'll bless you, and you'll be a blessing to the nations. Then we have the deliverance from Egypt. We have Moses, a whole theocracy, a government set up, rules, the Mosaic law, live like this and you'll receive God's blessing. If you don't live like this, there will be judgment and curses. Then we have David and Solomon and some kings. And at this point in the life of Israel, you are here. Israel has been disobedient. God's people have not done what he said in spite of repeated uh, instructions and warnings. They were idolatrous. They were not loving God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. They were not loving their neighbor as themselves. And if you look at the first chapter of Isaiah, there was injustice. Jerusalem was a corrupt city. And so as God had told them in the Mosaic Covenant, you will be judged. And so Isaiah looks forward to the day, this is 700 BC, even after Isaiah's day, Israel will be taken off into captivity in Babylon. And children, you know the story of Daniel. That's the time Isaiah is talking about, when those three friends of Daniel they were they were in the lions uh, in the in the fire, and uh, they lived among people and were faithful to God, even though those around them were not. That's where we are right now, Israel. Isaiah is looking forward and saying, "The time's coming when you will be in exile, Israel." And I want to tell you about a superhero who's coming. I want to tell you about the coming Messiah. One more kind of framey piece for us, sometimes we think of prophets as forth tellers who predict the future, and they certainly did that, absolutely. But we don't always think about prophets as forth tellers, not that forth, F-O-R-T-H tellers. Those who say to God's people, look, the covenant said this, if you do not stop disobeying, you're gonna get this, God's judgment. They're like covenant lawsuit enforcers. So when you read the prophets, you might think, here we are in the courtroom, and in Isaiah chapter 1, it's a cosmic courtroom. Isaiah summons, speaking for God, heaven and earth, come and listen. I have a case against my people. They have been unfaithful. Let me detail for you the charges against them and what's going to happen if they do not turn once again to me. So think of the prophets both as those who predict the future, but also tell forth, here's what God said. If you would just do what he said, things would be okay. But if you don't, judgment is coming. One last frame piece. Even when judgment was going to come on God's people, the prophets also talked about the coming day, the messianic age, the last times when a great and perfect king and prophet And priest would come and things would be different. The kingdom of God would come and blessing, shalom, justice, when relationships would be right when they were coming. And so this second half of Isaiah where we are in chapters 40 to 66 begins with these words, comfort, comfort my people. You've probably heard this in the Messiah if you listen to music at Christmas or Easter. Yes, Israel has been judged, but God promises comfort. And so the people hearing this particular text, passage from Isaiah, were probably wondering things like this. We know that God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We're in Babylon, we're a long way from Jerusalem. What about the promise, how can God judge his people and still fulfill his promises to them. How does that work? Okay, to our passage. The three things we're going to talk about. The motivation for the servant Savior's mission is in uh, verses 8 and 9 and verse 5. We're going to start there, not in verse 1. Then we'll look at the servant Savior's mission described. So the motivation for the servant Savior's mission, verses 5, 8, and 9, The servant Savior's mission described in verse 1 and 4. And then finally, the servant Savior's mission guaranteed in verses 6 and 7. So we'll start with verse 5 and then 9 and 10. The motivation for the servant Savior King's mission. The servant is coming because God's glory belongs to God alone. So it is God's glory that is the supreme motivation for this mission. Look at what he says in verse 5. He made it all. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. And then in verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. This is how the logic works. I'm the creator of the whole world, the whole universe, not just Israel and Judah, not just the geography of Israel. I made it all. All creation should be glorifying me, says the Lord. I will not give my glory to another. I think what he's saying kind of to God's people is Have you forgotten Genesis 1? I, I made all this, and I intend for all creation to give me glory. Idolatry is an abomination in God's eyes. So it's the glory of God that motivates this mission. And I wonder sometimes if we today need to be reminded of this. I know I certainly do. The servant's mission is designed to solve an idolatry problem because the nations and people are not giving God the glory that he deserves. And I wonder... How often do you think about the fact that God wants to receive all the glory for everything you ever think, say, or do? I mean, one of our problems as followers of Jesus even is that we, we kind of like the praise, don't we? we? We kind of are okay, God gets, we'll give him, okay. On a good day, we'll give him like 80%, but we have like 20% of the glory. It's a little praise left for me. Yeah, that's not a good idea <laughs> thank you Luke for praying this morning not unto us but unto your name be the glory forever and ever if this is true and we know it is it's not a good scene it's not a good act this is not a play we want to run to try to get glory for ourselves all the glory should always and only go to our creator God I haven't done a thorough search on this maybe someone will do it and report back I can't seem to find anywhere in the New Testament where followers of Jesus are encouraged to give glory to one another. Nowhere. Oh, we encourage each other, we build each other up, but the glory, it all belongs to the Lord. And so that's the motivation for the servant's mission, and perhaps it's a good reminder for us as well. This glory problem is a lot larger than we sometimes realize. So the encouragement to us today is if you want to please God, live for his glory. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Remember that we have nothing that we have not received. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. Any good thing you have is because of God. It, it's all for his praise. And glory and the more we live that way the more glory he receives and I suggest the more joyful we also will become okay so that's the first thing that the mission is motivated by God's glory the motivation to bring justice to the world to get the good news of the gospel out really the motivation for everything God does is to bring glory to himself the second The servant, savior, and mission defined. And we'll see this, excuse me, described in verses 1 through 4. Three times we're told that the mission involves getting justice out there. In verse 1, it says he will bring justice to the nations. In verse 3, it says in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. And in verse 4, it says he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his law, the islands will put their hope. Now, justice is a buzzword these days and a catchword for all kinds of activity. I was chatting with uh, some members of the church before I left on my trip about, you know, I should try to open that can of worms here. And they said, you know, that's Matt's job. And I said, you're right. So I'm not going to try to give you an exhaustive understanding of what we at River City Baptist Church believe about justice. But here's what I am going to say that justice is a very versatile term in the Bible. And we should always take our understanding of biblical words from the Bible, okay? not from what people are writing about or talking about or tweeting about or social mediaing about. We always need to read carefully, and we shouldn't assume because justice is understood this way in this passage that it's understood exactly the same way in another passage. It's a very versatile term. Isaiah's readers, I suggest, and listeners would have associated the word justice with the right and proper administration of dominion and kingship. So this is royal language here. It was the kings who made sure that justice happened. Isn't it great that we have a great king in Jesus? When the word justice is used, it implies a royal kingdom where things are done right. And again, a very simple way to think about justice is this. It's right relationships. And where it differs from much of what we read and hear about in today's world is right relationships with God. There's a a vertical aspect to justice. And of course, there's a horizontal aspect to justice. So when we read the word justice, we should think right, proper, true, God-honoring relationships between people, but also the creator and the creature. So it's the creator God who decides and explains what is right and what is just. I'm the Lord, he says. I made all this. I give life and breath. I spread out the heavens. In fact, even as uh, Matt's been teaching us from Mark, even that process of seeds growing, everything that springs, I'm in control of all of that. So you want to know about justice? You might want to consult me since I'm the creator and since I've given you a lot of instruction. Uh, You know, it's kind of like, how do you know how to use this thing? Well, you look at the user manual, right? God's given us a user manual for just relationships right here in Scripture, and we need to pay attention to that. But the point is, the mission of the servant, Savior, King, is to bring justice to the whole world, to the nations, even the islands. God is on a mission to bring glory to himself, as he extends right relationships with himself and with people, and even with the creation throughout the world. That's in part what the mission is and how we can understand it. But notice to you something else about this mission. He will not shout or cry out, it says, of this servant whom we know to be Jesus, by the way, we're reading the Bible like Christians and Jesus understood himself to be this servant. We're studying Mark together other Sundays. I think you'll hear echoes of this. Maybe you've wondered, why doesn't Jesus like announce what he's doing? He says, don't tell anybody. And then he goes off by himself. He does another miracle Then he does this and he's kind of under the radar. Well, verse two, this servant savior king will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Hmm, so he's not running a popularity contest. He's not gonna try to have a political campaign. He's not going to be like Cyrus, who came and rescued Israel temporarily and delivered them from Babylon. He's not a bully. Interesting. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. It sounds like the one who said this, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly. Heart. Sounds like the one who said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Sounds like what Paul says when he says, Be completely humble and gentle. This is our superhero. He's not about popularity, but he is about accomplishing his mission. And then he gives us two really clear images in verses three and four a bruised reed, it says, he will not break, and a smoldering wick. He will not snuff out. I think the picture there is two different images, but they're really interesting. Think about like a tall reed. Maybe you've seen by a river. It's growing tall. If it's been there a really long time and been beaten about by the wind and the rain, maybe even hailstorms or something, tornadoes, hurricanes, it, it it breaks in the middle and just kind of flops over. And like, what good is it for? Like you can't make a flute out of it. You can't even play fun games as a child with it. Like, a reed that's like bent, broken, what do you do with that? Well, of course, he's talking about people here. And it says, a bruised reed, our servant, Savior, King Jesus, will not break. We might be tempted to say, I get rid of that thing. What good is that? <clears throat> what good is that person? Oh, my. Let's not say that. He will not break a bruised reed. And again, as we look through Mark, we're going to see Jesus time and again reaching out to the very people that society has said are worthless. He will not break a bruised reed. Praise God for that. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. It's another picture. We don't use candles much anymore, but sometimes we go camping or we've used candles and occasionally the power does go out. I think what he's talking about there could be two things, but the application is the same. Some people think it's like when you're trying to light the candle, you know, it, it, it'll, it'll burn a minute and it just kind of smokes. You're like, ah, snuff that thing. Get another candle. Like, this one's not going to work. Maybe that's it. Or maybe it's the candle that's burned all the way down the wicks, like at the very bottom of that oil lamp, and it's just smoking now. There's no light left. There's no flame. Ah, psh, snuff it out. Let's get another one. That's not what he does. Wow. Is that good news or what? Maybe you came here today and you feel like the reed or the wick. Life's beaten you about and battered you. You're struggling. It's for young and old. Maybe you're just kind of getting started in the Christian life. You're not making progress. Understand this. Jesus isn't going to come along and snuff that wick out. He's not going to come along and knock that reed out of the way. That's not who our suffering servant Savior King is. It's not what he is like. And again, we'll see this time and again in Mark as Matt leads us through the passage. So, of course, he's not talking about reeds and wicks. He's talking about people when he says this. So never, ever think that if you come to Jesus with faith and humility and meekness, that he will turn you away. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that Jesus welcomes all who will come. Whosoever will may come. If you come to Jesus feeling like a bruised reed or a smoking wick, know that he will receive you. He will help you. He will bind up your wounds. Later on in Isaiah 55, it says, you're hungry and thirsty and you have no money? Come on. Anyone who thirsts, let him come and drink free without cost. That is really good news for us. And it's good news that that mission is in the hands of our capable Jesus Christ, the servant Savior King. A couple other things I want us to notice about how the mission is described. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. So there's a connection there between faithfulness and justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. So it's a universal, in the sense of reaching into all areas, mission, and he will not falter or be discouraged. Again, what great news is that? We are so unlike our servant savior, Jesus, still. We do falter, we do get discouraged. You can't read the news and not think, wow, where is this justice that he promised? When is it gonna happen? You can't look around the globe and think of places where there's still not a Christian church and say, ah, what is going on here? And yet our servant savior, we're told, does not grow discouraged. He will not falter or be discouraged until the mission is accomplished. So there's one application for us in this before we move on to the very last point. I think we should assume that this process of seeing the mission accomplished, justice being established, the gospel going to the ends of the earth, is a process. Here's why I think that. You know, if something happens instantaneously, you do not get discouraged, you do not need endurance. You wouldn't say, oh, you didn't falter, like, done. No, that's not what it is. And that's what we find in scripture, that between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, There's a process of the kingdom expanding like Matt has shown us, seeds being planted and growing up. Maybe it's a small seed, eventually it's like a mustard tree, but it is a process. And so I think the encouragement to us is that even the servant Savior King Jesus knew that this would be a process. So the fact that it's a process shouldn't discourage us, but we do need to be like our Savior and look to him so that we don't falter or grow discouraged you know one of the things about seeking justice today outside the church in the world is when do you want justice we want it now oh, i'm sorry it's not the way it works we want justice when now ah and if you're here and you're not a christian or you, you're just kind of on the outside you're not sure if you're a christian You should understand what the Bible teaches is if you have not yet put your faith and trust in Christ, you do not want justice now. Because the Creator has claims on your life. He made you. And you've spent your life up to this point giving someone something, maybe yourself, maybe your career, maybe relationships, sports, school, the glory that He rightfully deserves. And He deserves an infinite amount of glory. And instead, you've taken it for yourself or given it somewhere else. And that's what the Bible calls sin, falling short of the glory of Christ. And God is just, and He will punish all sin. But the good news is that He's provided a way for us to have forgiveness of sins. Like the bruised reed and the smoking flack, He's not going to snuff us out if we'll come to Him and say, I repent, I turn from my sins, I see now what Christ has done, that he lived the life that I should have lived. He always gave you glory and never once arrogated it for himself in a way that didn't honor you. I need forgiveness. That's the only way that God can be just and justify you, is to pour out his just punishment on Jesus Christ, who never once did anything wrong, who never faltered or was discouraged who never mistreated the bruisery of the smoking flax, who always did what was right and just, who did not shout or cry out, who even as he was taken to the cross spoke no deceit, never was there sin found in his mouth in spite of being treated very unjustly by a host of people. You need a savior like that. The good news is he offers that salvation to any who will come to him. And there are plenty of people in this room and I myself be happy to talk to you about that more uh, if you wish. And stick around as long as you want or get together with you. Okay, so this the the, the mission described there, the motivation for the mission. And then finally the servant savior's mission is guaranteed. Let's look at verses six and seven. This is great news. I mean, it's good news so far. This is really good news. I, the Lord, have called. Okay, the Isaiah, in the first little bit, it's God, in a sense, saying, here's my servant, son, Savior, King Jesus. This is what he's like. This is what he's going to do. And then it's as though God turns to Jesus and speaks directly to him. I, the Lord, have called you, my servant, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I don't know if you noticed, some of you, when you read, uh, have read the, the first chapter in Genesis, excuse me, at one point it says, God said, let us make man in our image. Well, that's interesting. I thought we were monotheists. I thought there's only one God. Yeah, there is only one God, and he exists in three persons. And even in Genesis 1, we have hints of that. And in our passage here, the reason the mission will succeed in part is because all three persons of the Trinity are committed to it. Did you see that in verse 42? I will put my spirit on him, on Jesus. And if you've been here as we've looked through Mark, what have you heard? That at Jesus' baptism, the spirit descended upon him. And what else does it say? He's the chosen one in whom I delight. What did the voice from heaven say? God the Father to the Son. This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united together, likely having made this determination about this mission before the world even began. I'm going to make it happen. Let's get together. No, no. He doesn't say, you've got this, servant, as God speaks to him. What does he say? We've got this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've got this. I'll take hold of your hand. And the message there is, I'll grab tightly onto you, Lord Jesus, my son. Because you're going to become a person, as we read in Philippians 2, you're going to give up some of that glory to come and live a perfect life and die in the place of sinners to bring justice to the nations. But I've got a hold of you. So when Jesus prays in the garden, not my will but thine be done, he knows the Father's got a grip on him and this mission is going to succeed. And then he says something very interesting there at the end. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison. He doesn't say, you know, I'll let you sort of teach a new covenant or explain a new covenant. He says, you'll be the covenant. This is terribly important in how we understand our scripture. Under the old covenant, people related to God through the covenant. And what was that? It was the law of Moses. It was the whole arrangement. It was a sacrificial system. It was all kinds of things. But basically, to relate to God, you first had to relate to him through the Mosaic covenant. You basically had to become a Jew before you could relate to God. Now, God says in this this mission, this new thing that I'm telling you about beforehand, so that I can receive the glory, Jesus is the covenant. Wow. What that means is the way people relate to God now is through a person, Jesus the Christ, who made a way for us by living the life we couldn't live, justifying the unjust, rising again from the dead who is at the right hand interceding for us. You got to catch that because the other important piece about the mission is it's not just for the Jews. It's for the whole world. A light to the nation, justice On the earth, even the islands will put their hope in the law of Jesus, or we might say the law that is Jesus. So it's a light for the Gentiles. It's a covenant for the people, and it's Jesus who is that covenant. And then in verse 7, of course, he's freeing people from physical bondage, as we see in the Gospel of Mark, but that's also hinting at the spiritual bondage that people have. So the mission is going to succeed because all three persons are involved. It's guaranteed because the the servant Savior is the covenant. And then finally, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but he's also the pattern for our lives. And a few quick applications before we end. We read Philippians 2. We know that we're supposed to pattern our lives after Christ. We know the great commandment love God, love neighbor. We know the great commission. And then there's the great requirement, which is hinted at here. I, I haven't really thought about this, but as I was preparing, I, I really liked that phrase. Does anybody know what the great requirement is? What does the Lord require of you? Micah 6, 8, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So those are great guidelines for, for any of God's people. And let's get busy with the great commandment. Let's do the great commission. But what about the great requirement? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Jesus did that, and he invites us to participate as well. And the great commission, of course, is to make disciples of all nations. We want to read this passage, understand that it's talking about Jesus, learn from it. We also want to live like Jesus as we look to Jesus alone who gives us the strength to do that. You know, faraway places often seem out of sight, out of mind. I'll, I'll be honest with you, uh, I was gone for 10 days, and while I was there, I was really focused on what was going on around me. I'm thankful for the prayer app of this church because it reminded me to be praying for you all. But I needed a reminder, and you know, I was in another place, and we tend to focus on what's right there. Uh, let me just encourage us that we need, to, we need reminders to keep focused on, on the, the mission to the nations the gospel going forward to the ends of the earth. I'm so thankful that we pray every week for a different part of the world. But perhaps there are ways we could step up our game a little bit of just making sure that it's part of our our own family devotions, that we're praying for the nation. We're thinking about what's my role? How can I live like Jesus among the nation? Who around me has limited access to the gospel that I can be about sharing this good news with? There's only one hero in the Bible and his name is Jesus. There's only one superhero. It's fine to watch those movies as long as you remember. They're just kind of tapping into something that's here that's only resolved by the servant savior, king, lord, messiah, Jesus Christ who never faltered and cannot be discouraged who will accomplish his mission. So be careful that you worship only one hero. There was a pastor long time ago well died in 1901 african-american he was a freed slave his name was john jasper lived in richmond started the sixth mount zion baptist church actually planted a church on an island over there near the james river and the church was quite large he became a believer before he was freed and after he was freed he continued to preach and teach very very popular lots of people came to hear john Well, in his second to last message, he was standing in the pulpit and uh, imagining, using a sanctified imagination, to talk about meeting the angel at heaven's gate. Of course, he didn't think there was like a physical gate. That's not the point, it was a rhetorical device. But boy, did he get this right. He's carrying on this conversation with the angel, and the angel says, Jasper, you're here. All those guys you talked about in the Bible. Who do you want to meet you want to meet moses and jasper said oh yeah he wiped the tears of all our eyes not yet caleb maybe how about caleb caleb's over here you want to meet caleb Ah, uh, yeah i'd like to see caleb Mm-mm, just not yet david the king yeah sure I'm interested in seeing David, but not not not, not yet. Solomon, the what? No, 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 no. Well, Jasper, this is heaven's gate. How about your mother, Tina? She's here. Do you want to see her? He said, "Oh, I want to see my mother, but first I want to see Jesus." I want to gaze into his face for a thousand years. He's the only hero I really want to see. I think that's a good word for us. Let's pray. Our great God and our heavenly Father, how we thank you that the mission is sure and certain. You've guaranteed it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, would you help us to live more like Jesus? Would you help us to look to Jesus and help us to give you all the glory you deserve? Thank you for the good news of the gospel. May we walk by faith in Jesus' name, amen.